0: Hello, and welcome to the Newberry Report, where we take children's literature super seriously. Today on the podcast, MC Higgins the Great by Virginia Hamilton. Hello, and welcome to the Newberry Report. I'm uh, Carrie Kasten, uh, your trustworthy and honorable host, uh, and joining me today is Carolyn Burns. Carolyn Burns, how are you? Hi, I'm good, Carrie. How are you? Great, thank you very much. So, uh, Carolyn, do you want to start with the back of your book? Sure. Um, Okay. So, Mayo
1: Cornelius, a.k.a. M.C. Higgins, sits on his gleaming 40-foot steel pole towering over his home on Sarah's Mountain. Stretched before him are rolling hills and shady valleys, but behind him lie the wounds of strip mining, including a mountain of rubble that may one day fall and bury his home. MC dreams of escape for him and his family, and one day atop his pole, he thinks he sees it. Two strangers are making their way towards Sarah's Mountain. One has the ability to make MC's
0: mother famous, and the other has a freedom that MC has never even considered. I appreciate the dramatics because the back of the book is written fairly dramatically. I like that ours, though different editions, are the same with the exception of mine doesn't say aka MC on it. Oh, mine doesn't either. I just added that for our own benefit. (laughs) That's great. So they stuck with this back of the book description despite how confusing it might be. Yeah.
1: So let's talk about these two strangers that make their way towards Sarah's Mountain. So one of them is, I think the basis of uh, most of what happens in the book, and that's our lovely character of Loretta Outlaw. Oh, oh, no, you don't. I think... was stranger number one James K. Lewis.
0: Oh, yes, aka The Dude. Yeah, The Dude. Yeah, I was like, Are we in uh, oh, shoot, what's the name of that Coen Brother movie? Uh, uh, the bowling yeah Uh, jesus (laughs) no jesus big lebowski yeah i was like are we suddenly in the big lebowski like why are we referring to this guy as the dude and a dude as if dude were i guess at the time like that something that meant really specific which i assume had to do with long hair and music ethno ethnomusicology (laughs) because that is um, unfortunately, painfully clear to a seasoned reader of this book that that guy is just there to record the dying art of yodeling amongst this very insular community. Right. So the... so. Plot wise, MC has heard from the
1: grapevine or from his friends that there's this guy that's going to come up top the mountain and capture his mother's voice on, on a record and then will invite her down. On a tape recorder. On a tape recorder. <laughs> I would love him to have a traveling record player. To <laughs> a <laughs> traveling record press. <laughs> uh, so he records her on the, the tape recorder and then he's going to take her. Voice down, sell it to these bigwig music producers and make her famous, and that will be their escape from Sarah's Mountain. Uh, and you, you know, I think that as as intelligent readers, you can kind of tell just from context clues that that's not going to happen.
0: Yeah, the more characters talk about something happening, the more you're like, oh no, also just <laughs> this isn't going to happen. Just
1: with common sense, you know, someone's not traveling to the middle of the woods or the mountain to find, you know, the one voice so that they can take them down to Nashville and record a hit album. It's just not something that's going to happen. But and
0: it's particularly sad because uh, as I was mentioning, it was painfully clear to me as soon as this character showed up that his job is to record this like slowly dissolving community of people that communicate via Yodeling in the mountains. And well I guess we'll get into this in a moment we might as well get into it now because here we are the the sort of stench of death and extinction like reeks very heavily in this piece in a way that um, is foreshadowed beyond the length of the book the book only takes place over three days Mm -hmm. Um, but you can clearly tell that the life that these characters um, know and uh, came here to live is slowly dying out Um, and you can tell that Um, through a variety of things, through the way that the natural resources of the land have been eaten up (laughs) and they've been left in the wake to just wait for it to slowly come down the hill and crumple their house. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. To, yeah, this, this, it's so funny how things from now the 70s are read. Like they're from this almost prehistoric, pre internet time where, like, they don't have a phone in their house, even though it's clearly contemporary because he sings Ticket to Ride and, <laughs> and the, their parents, his parents met post World War II. So, yeah, this book takes place, if not in the early 70s, in the mid to late 60s, in which case, the fact that they don't have a phone is going to become pretty quickly uh, an anomaly to this area and and they've already felt the weight of like the rest of the world coming in when they were sort of shoddily paid off <laughs> for the damage done to their home but pretty soon the rest of the world is going to kind of come crashing in on these people and we feel it with the outsiders sort of being this foreboding presence of what's going to be the end of the life that they have as they know it. Um, now that we've gotten off this dark, dark tangent, <laughs> let's talk about how we feel. Okay. <laughs> how did you feel about the book? Did you like it? Or You know, I had contrasting feelings about this
1: book. I really, really enjoyed certain aspects of it, and but at the end of the day, like I wasn't excited to keep reading it, um, and I kind of had to not, like, force myself to finish it, but had to, like, take the effort to to want to read it. And I think that that kind of stems from the fact that nothing really happens in this book, <laughs> plot-wise. There's not a lot that goes on, and there's actually a lot of repetition when it comes to not only, like, events, but, like, ideas, dialogue, you know? There's a lot that just happens over and over and over until I, I started thinking, is this um like a literary device I'm like am I supposed to read into the fact that it keeps repeating itself am I supposed to think that you know because this kid thinks the same thing every 10 minutes for the entire book that I should put more weight on that but I don't think so I think it's just it didn't flow in the way that I really was able to keep my
0: interest That's interesting. I found the book more compelling as I went along. (laughs) So I have the exact opposite opinion. Um, I had trouble getting into it because I was kind of like, oh, boy, we're putting all our eggs into these baskets, which are going to end horribly. He treats uh, our main character, MC Higgins, treats the new woman in town, the new girl in town, Loretta, Loretta, horribly. (laughs) Like he, he stabs her. That's the second time. The first time he just awkwardly jumps like at her.
1: Right. And then the second time he stabs her. I think he
0: scratches her, but yes, yes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the word that was used was stabs her. <laughs> so, it's there was a lot turning me off really early on. When we finally meet Lewis, he is he talks about her as if she's a little girl despite the fact that he was a hitchhiker that she picked up <laughs> and drove to this town. And there was so much turning me off. I sort of get a little hesitant with male lead protagonists, which I know is uh, both redundant and um, and uh, unimaginative of me to find as a turnoff. But the way that he plays with his father and the insane, <laughs> the violent games that they partake in, which he then carries over into his relationship with this new girl, <laughs> is like utterly... It just completely turns me off to wanting this guy to do well. <laughs> I think, though, this is tangential. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Okay. Uh, <laughs> if we didn't have tangents, we wouldn't have a show.
1: <laughs> um, just because you mentioned the the fighting with his father, so the very first time we're actually introduced to the character of the father, he, they they have this like wrestling session where you know the the dad kind of uh, is treating him in in the very. Uh, you know, stereotypical fashion of, like, man up. Like, if you're a true man, you should be able to fight me. You should be able to wrestle. You should be able to, you know, take pain and do all that stuff. And at one point, basically, MC screams, like, mercy or whatever, and the father lets up, and you see that he's, like, a true dude. But the first impression that at least I got was that the father was one of those like overbearing, aggressive, probably emotionally distant fathers. And I was like, oh, what an interesting idea to have a child growing up in that sort of an environment. And where is that going to bleed over into the rest of his life? And then every other experience you had with the father past that was loving and nurturing and understanding. You know, like we we see glimpses into the father's racism, which comes out later. But at the same time, like he's accommodating to him and his friends he's even even though we know he's he has racist feelings towards this other family the Kilburns which are the witchy folk uh, when he eventually brings one of them over he he supports it you know he doesn't say anything he he allows this child to to come into his home I don't know it, it seemed like a weird 180 flip to me yeah
0: First off, that's the end of the book. <laughs> so he, we had 270-odd pages of the father evolving to get to the point where, he, and it was basically at, at almost at knife point from MC that the father allows Ben to, Ben, the son of the Kilburns, who yes. MC has been hanging out with. I'll give you yeah. that. <laughs> at knife point, which he didn't steal, but assumes the girl left for him. And Loretta left for him. Um, yeah, no, I agree. I think that there's, so I, we don't get the kids ages until very late. Um, we get that MC is 13 when the father sort of makes fun of him for being 13 and having a crush. So by he's been following this girl, Loretta, who's walking around the woods on her own, who has a note from her mom. So everyone knows it's OK. <laughs> He's been following her around. The first time, he practically jumps on her. Like, not jumps her, but jumps on her. And the second time, yeah, he pins her down, kisses her, takes her knife, and marks her with it. Stabs her. Stabs her. I think it was a little lighter. I'm not justifying. It's wrong. (laughs) It's wrong. And then he's like, why doesn't she like me? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, honey. Like, I know you're 13, but you can't you can't think that that I guess that's how he thinks how women work but in a way isn't it interesting to just have a cultural study of a child that is
1: so distanced from every other person that really the only people he comes in contact with are his immediate family and then his one friend that he's been forbidden to hang out with and has to do it in secrecy and then plop an age appropriate girl down in front
0: of him yeah I I mean I I'm not saying he does go to school it's not like he's never met them before that is true But maybe there's something that turns him off, something that feels too close to home about the schoolgirls, that he doesn't know how to interact with them. And I'll give you, a transition occurs (laughs) somewhere between 12 and 16 for boys, so it's possible that it's just coming on, Um, although we don't get hints of, we don't get sort of puberty um, signifiers in this. There's there's dreams, but there's no wet dreams, you know, Mm. there's... There's anger, but there's no sudden, inexplicable anger. You know, everything feels pretty grounded. So not not that puberty isn't grounded. Puberty is an important, and and, uh, it's an experience you only have once, so maybe find a way to enjoy it. I think we should just say one word about Joan, not one word, several words, about Joan's affection and love and commitment to um, not only the land, but the way that he divides his love and respect and devotion to the land with that for his wife, Benina, is that how we say it? Mm -hmm. Are you just saying that? Benina. Benina, okay. How he divides and um, respects both Benina and the land, because she says, I don't want all of these tombstones in my yard where my kids are gonna play so he removes all of the tombstones of his family of his ancestors who came to this not ancestors I guess great grandmother and and grandma or yeah his grandmother mm-hmm. and father because it's his great grandmother right of his grandmother who like escaped to this area with her baby from a, presumably her terrible Irish husband I guess <laughs> to found this homestead which they own which is a sense of a source of pride totally negated by the freeloading kilburns who say you don't have to own anything you can just farm it and squat <laughs> and he removes these tombstones which for him are markers of of honor and hides them under the house so that she can have the yard that she wants for her kids
1: yeah i <sighs> I don't know if I have any more of a comment other than just that that's it's beautiful he's a complex guy that Jones and I think apart from MC he's the one that's written the most passionately by the author she really gives him like this full full character to him and he's in so little
0: of the novel and there's so much in their move back to the hills which is clearly important to him because she had a job in an embassy Mm -hmm. (laughs) she had a presumably a great job that paid a good amount of money that she got the carpet you know um, and they moved back for him I mean he says they wanted to go back to the hills but you really get the sense that it was for him and he doesn't even really have a job she's the one that works primarily
1: see MC you can convince Loretta to live with you apparently apparently Mm -hmm. men can convince women to give up everything and live on hills with them (laughs)
0: We have to take a quick pause. We'll be right back.
2: This episode of the Newberry Report is sponsored by Payfully. Renting your home or spare room can be a great way to earn some extra income, but actually getting paid can take months. That's where Payfully comes in. Payfully is a safe and secure way to get paid for your upcoming reservations within 24 hours of them being booked. Payfully deposits directly into your bank account with funds usually available the same day. It works with all the major platforms Airbnb, VRBO, HomeAway and others, and they've helped thousands of hosts expand their business or cover unexpected expenses. Visit payfully.co. That's p a y f u l l y.co for $20 off your first request with code NEWBERRY. That's payfully.co promo code newberry n-e-w-b-e-r-y
0: hello listeners are you a business owner your next customer might be listening right now just like you are you can let them know who you are by sponsoring this show just email us at hello at citizenracecar.com that's h-e-l-l-o at citizenracecar.com And now back to M.C. Higgins, The Great. Um, so I guess we should finally talk about the Kilburns. Oh, as Carolyn has been waiting the whole episode to do Kilburns. so. The
1: Kilburns! So, Carrie, you and I were talking before this podcast. You seemed to think that they were an African-American family. And I seemed to think the exact opposite. And I thought that was interesting. I wonder why we both had those differing opinions.
0: I assumed because we didn't really talk about anybody's race that everybody was sort of the same because in such a small town, I think it would be more overt um, to if people were different races.
1: Just the description of the family. I think to the name Kilburn sort of put Irish in my head a little bit. Um, so the distinguishing characteristic of the Kilburns, though, is that they they are the six fingered hands and toes people and toes people the witchy folk. What a wonderful term I have to say. I really responded to the fact that they were witchy. I don't know why. I it's such a it's such a simple term to use, but what an interesting take on. It's basically like racism mixed with what's the word
0: like a cult like I'm not witchy. Yeah. Um I uh it's not a nice thing to call people, but I did love this that scene where um eventually loretta is like let's you think you're brave like let's go to the kilburns like uh not plantation but whatever it, compound commune yeah <laughs> their com- compound mound <laughs> mound compound um com mound <laughs> com, com- mound. <laughs> yes hashtag that um yeah they go to their commound and um like, every time he gets upset or he feels angry, he describes whatever the most recent thing is with, like, witchy hands. So, like, we get these just flashes of his anger that sort of felt to me like um, like a Danny Boyle movie, you know, where he sort of interjects those still images to sort of, like, frighten you. Um, and it was just this, like, refrain of witchy hands.
1: To me, it was such a realistic portrayal of the truths of racism, And I think that the reason for that is that, you know, we get these wonderful moments in the novel where MC comes to terms with the fact that logically there's nothing wrong with these people. And he has these like wonderful little heart to hearts with himself where he discusses, you know, that it, it, they're not so different from us and we shouldn't be scared of them and what's so wrong with their fingers anyway? And they have
0: food and we don't have all that much
1: food. And they are good people, you know, one of his best friends is Ben and and you sort of start to see him like coming to terms with like the logical fact that I think we all know that disliking someone just based on their race is, is silly and unnecessary. But then whenever he goes into like these fits of, Fear or aggression or scared or whatever that's when it comes out and I think that that's so true to life where it's it's not something that your logical brain is it's something that's just been ingrained in him for so long that like his default is that the witchy people are bad and that they're witchy and it it just it was such an interesting take on it because I think it was so well portrayed in that regard and it's not a common thing that you see written like so realistically like that
0: I'm on the fence, though, about the way that it happened. I don't want to be anti-Loretta because she's, you know, an interesting woman on her own, like, driving her little car (laughs) across the country, Um, which I think is, I think there's a lot more to her that we do not know about. But the way that she goes about exposing his um, biases, I think, Biases, biases, um, is it's like kinda of cruel. And in action she has only seen Jones be nasty because when the Iceman come the Iceman cometh, um <laughs> He's a pretty reasonable. He's a pretty reasonable guy to them, you know. He and he says he actually enjoys when they come because mm-hmm. it's usually just him. And um, he tells their joke about charging one seventy five. Jk, Jk, just seventy five. And and he defends his father, but he doesn't take action. And so I think I, I don't know. I'm of two minds in the same way that. Um, MC is of two minds mm-hmm. about whether she went about it in the most respectful way possible because he gets there and they make fun of him the whole time mm-hmm. and she does nothing to support him when they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, they keep making fun of him for eating meat, <laughs> which I was like, this is why no one likes vegetarians. Like there's, <laughs>
1: but this is why I'm so interested in the Kilburns. What a, fascinating group of people that we just get to see this like tiny little tip of the iceberg of what a fascinating cool people they are and i just i wanted i remember like after we left the comm mound and we returned back to just like the regular mc higgins story i was like i want a whole separate book that's just on the kilburns oh i could not stand them but on these but on just this weird people that are like they're vegetarian hill folk they steal his rabbit's feet. They, they yeah, we don't well, I know, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know that it's them, but someone stole his rabbit's what feet. What a weird moment. <laughs> what a super creepy moment. I literally that sent shivers up my spine when that happened. I was like, is someone behind him right now? <laughs> um He also the the dad or who was it on the on the mound? It was probably the dad or one Mister, of one of the yeah, killbirds. Uh has trapped all of the garden snakes to Punish them for a crime that we never figure out what it is. But he sleeps with them. He's (laughs) yes. And he takes them out and lets them sit on his hand and I think bite his fingers and then go back in his in his jar of snakes. He's just keeping hanging out. And there's this creepy old lady that just sits in the dark all day long and like... Cabbage. (laughs) Takes apart heads of cabbage, Takes apart cabbage. And I just... He left and MC leaves and I was like no! What an interesting people. Did you not want to learn more about them? Were you not intrigued I just didn't find them
0: sympathetic. Uh, That doesn't mean we should... Not at all! But I want to learn about them! (laughs) Like I liked Ben. (laughs) I was like Ben, what a great guy. And poor Ben being like um, not that there's anything wrong with the way that he lives but he understands that he's shunned by the rest of society but he doesn't really understand why um,
1: which is funny because Ben in and of itself lives in this commune of what seems like tens of you know easily 23 kids I think 23 children yeah uh, needless to say how many adults would be in there and he lives next door to MC Higgins of a family of five yeah and yet he is the outsider it, it's I feel like there's more of a story there. Yeah, yeah. And I just, I'm so intrigued to hear what it's about. Also, there's gotta be, I have to mention like there, one of the most beautifully like scenic and like wonderful imagery moments of the book is describing this strange, like vine built spider web that I, I remember as I was reading it, being really upset that I was reading it and not watching a film of it because it seemed like something I just couldn't wrap my brain around exactly how it worked
0: he says it's like a god's eye.
1: Yeah. And then but then like everyone hangs out on this weird like spider web of vines and then they just drop down to the fields below
0: them to farm and then they pop back up to so you don't walk through the gardens to get where you're going.
1: Is that is that not weird? That's so weird. Don't you want to learn more about these people? <laughs> Ugh, so weird.
0: Um I'm sorry, I just have to read this. This is Mr. Kilburn talking about green garden snakes. Oh, well, now this one, Kilburn said. I call him March noon because that was the time I first caught him. He gave me several nightmares. You see, the green grass is pure pleasure to people. Put him on your pillow when you're feeling sick and he will lick away the fever. He will bring you the prettiest dreams. I wrote in all caps A H H. Ah. Ah, what (laughs) I was thinking a lot about um, like why a book like why is this a book and there um, because there is so much Mm -hmm. description and I don't think that um, book writers should be denied description of course not of course not right like of course we should be able to visualize what it is you're talking about but it seemed so crucial the concept of like getting lost the way that things look the same It felt, like, so important for you to see it. I don't know, did you feel like, why is this a book? Like, this should be a movie or something more visual? A little
1: bit. I mean, it's, I will say this about the novel, is that the prose of the whole thing is beautiful. As far as, like, the written word on the page, like, I just think it's so descriptive and so evocative of this wonderful environment that she's created. She's created this little, like, microcosm of and it's an entire world, basically, because you never leave the hill, but you start to see that like everything you want is on the hill. And in that way, I love the book. And I think that was really interesting. And I, I love that it was written down because there is some imagery you, you get better in words than you can like on a screen. But I, I don't know, like I, at the end of the day, also, like I want it to be backed up with some more action and some narrative happening. And that just was something that left me a little bit wanting for
0: i agree because there are these times like i mentioned where we we're in the close close third person for the almost the entirety of the story but there are occasional moments where we sort of dropped for just a line or just an idea into mc's head and we had i mm-hmm. and to me that seems like one of the easiest methods of um engaging a reader through a book is to put it in first person right great we're in someone's head how compelling already um But then there is this other section um, right at the end of of chapter 10, right before, uh, like literally the last page of chapter 10, where it's like this happiness montage of they're eating the potato soup. Loretta, the the traveling girl, Loretta, has been uh, won over, I guess, (laughs) by MC and has agreed to come over for lunch. And, um, the father has agreed to, I'll be so nice to her. You won't even know who I am. (laughs) And he has, uh, shilled out some money for nutmeg and he is making potato soup. And he's like at a fancy restaurant where you sit and look at the chef while they're preparing the meal, like is entertaining, telling stories, being really charismatic. And, uh, it's interrupted by a, um, a horribly disrespectful display of patronage t- towards the Kilburns and the Kilburns come by and sell the ice. Um, so that sort of disrupted the really romantic energy of <laughs> the afternoon for MC and Loretta. Um, and they're, they're eating it now. He's really hoping to salvage the moment. And things seem to be going fine because she is eating the potato soup. She's having a great time, he thinks. And he like his head just goes to this like weird happiness montage of like them sitting next to each other eating the soup and then like him teaching her how to fish and like him teaching her how to skin a rabbit and like back to the soup and then like them running down the hills and then back to the soup and it's like, yes, this is this juxtaposition of like what we're seeing and what's in your head. It feels like the culmination of like bookness (laughs) about this. And I, I wish there'd been more of that Um, I think it came out in a way that you sort of indicated already about it being repetitive. uh, Mm -hmm. And that was sort of what's going on in his brain. But those moments for me really worked. Uh, I loved how he had conversations with people in his head, too, (laughs) as someone that used to do that a lot i think i'm better at it um as someone that used to uh and still does sometimes narrate action in their head i think it's a way of coping and dissociating so i don't recommend it but as someone that (laughs) used to do that a lot more and someone that used to have a lot more conversations with people in their head um i definitely appreciated those moments though um for him i it i I was on the fence about whether it demonstrated a complete lack of understanding for the person that he was talking to in his head or a an understanding of those people with Ben. We're sort of led to believe that that is how Ben would talk mm-hmm. and how Jones would talk, but the conversations with Loretta were like totally made up, right?
1: Well, yeah, he had much less he had much less of a frame of reference for his weird internal conversation with Loretta though. Um, I don't know. I kept trying to put myself into the mindset of a of a boy living basically isolated for most of the time on a hilltop with only a few people to talk to every day, and I can see how this sort of inter, like this rich internal world, comes out. Because I, I remember thinking at some point, I was like, "Oh, is this some weird artistic child prodigy, or is this just something that the the author has written in to give us more context and?" And then I was like, no, he probably has a rich inner world because that's all that he has. It's a world without TV and radio and all of these. I mean, they have a radio. But they don't use it. He knows ticket to ride, and I don't know how, but... <laughs> they have a great
0: couch and a plush carpet. hmm Which you're not supposed to be on at noon. <laughs> it's okay to track mud in as long as you clean it up afterwards. <laughs> Seems, like, pretty reasonable. Yeah. So I have two um, sort of illusions. An illusion of life are uh, metaphor within the piece that describes how one could interpret the life that one is leading or should look at life. So maybe you can take one if you want one. Yeah. I'll read them both and you can pick. Um, so the first one, and they weirdly are on opposite pages of each other, <laughs> about halfway Page. through the book. one thirty. I don't know if you have the same, 130 and 131. Okay. So um, the first one is, um, the same thing day after day is enemy to a growing boy and the second one is similar but different uh, I guess these are sort of truisms or aphorisms more than they are illusions but the second one is you live wide awake she said or you quit living mm, I like the second one I think we all like the second one <laughs> but also because we're not growing boys <laughs> It's true. So um, we should grade this book. Yeah. um, And then say our goodbye. So before we say goodbye, Carolyn, what do you give this book? Um, I want to give it two
1: floppy rabbit ears. In memory of the poor, poor rabbit who passed during the writing of this novel. I wish you had your paws back. (laughs) uh yeah two 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 out of five i think that that's fair for the way that i felt about this novel
0: great great i'm gonna give this book uh a 30 foot pole because i thought 40 feet was overcompensating (laughs) so thank you so much carolyn burns for yet again joining me to discuss uh mc higgins the great oh you're welcome carrie anytime all right thanks so much bye bye (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Newberry Report. Join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter at Newberry Report. That's N E W B E R Y Report. The Newberry Report is produced and hosted by me, Carrie Kasten, and my co host is Carolyn Burns. It's co produced and edited by David Hoffman. The Newberry Report is a production of Race Car Radio. www.racecarradio.com you can listen to new episodes there, or on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcasting apps. Join us next time for the 1976 winner, The Grey King, by Susan Cooper.
2: Race Car Radio is a division of Citizen Race Car. We tell stories.